Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp and today we have a very cool guest, uh, somebody who is well known in the European ecosystem um, and who himself is now an investor, having been himself a founder as well. Uh, his name is Andy McLaughlin, he's now at SoftTech VC and before I give you more of his story, I want to hear it straight from him. Um, we're here at the Collision Conference, so apologies for the background noise that you hear. Um, at least they can't hear me sweating. Oh come on! You're not. You're never. Ner you're never nervous. Come oh no, on. it's more to do with the heat. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, I thought I made you nervous, but hopefully not, Andy. Um, <laughs> when when you started back in the day, when you were leaving uni, yep. And you you know before you kind of went down the auto path and all the things that are going on, what were you what were you studying? What were you thinking? What was the next stage in, in your career when you graduated? So um, so I studied um, economics at the University of Sheffield. Um, I realized about a year or so in that I actually didn't enjoy economics very much um, and that I was more interested in um, IT, the internet, uh, computer science and so I, um, I was however in this position that I, I was in the final year that got the grants at university and you know I really couldn't have afforded to have gone if I didn't get the grant and if I changed my course I would have had to have, like, I would have, had to have paid all the fees and got like no money to be there. So. It was basically a case of, of tough it out and do as many modules in other areas as I could have done. Um, so I graduated, um, and I think I think by then I'd absolutely decided I didn't want to do economics or work in a bank or anything like that. Um, and I ended up working for a, a telco. Um, they were pretty small at the time, um, just a few hundred people, but they were a FTSE 250 listed business, growing like a weed, like through the kind of telecoms boom of the early 2000s. And I ended up running all of their um, online systems for them. So I ran their websites, their intranets, their extranets, document management systems, kind of provisioning systems. And I was like the only, you know, we had a big technical team, but I was the only kind of like front end web type guy. And I, you know, it was a mixture of design and marketing. So it's kind of like a great way to cut your teeth and learn how to do everything in a business. And I guess, I, you know, I'm forever in the debt of a guy called Nigel Pitcher, who was the marketing director there, who decided to give a kid with no experience a job instead of, um, someone who was probably far better qualified. And, and so that you, you got a lot of exposure then because of that role into how large companies potentially collaborate. Yeah, and, that, and absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. And you know, one of the last jobs I did for them was I, I put in a document management system. Um, and then the company I did that with, uh, they actually poached me to move to London. So I was, I was living in glamorous Basingstoke at the time, which um, if anyone's been there, it's kind of like the probably the sixth level of hell it's um <laughs> no offense to anyone from Basingstoke listening but it's uh and and so I, you know when I got the opportunity to move to London I you know I just jumped at it I was spending a lot of time there at the weekends all my friends were there from university and um I ended up working for a uh, a small consultancy that put in document management business process collaboration systems into big banks and uh, insurance companies and a, a few telcos as well and that was kind of really where the idea for huddle came from you know I was working I had to wear a suit every day, which kind of sucked. But I was working inside these big organizations and seeing kind of how they collaborated and how they used these systems. And every single company that we sold these kind of big package deals into, you know, like half a million pounds plus, everyone said, well, this is great because it manages, manages our archiving and manages our processes and scanning and whatever else. But what would also be really cool is if we could like collaborate with people outside our business on it. And that's kind of really where the idea for Huddle came from. Um, but so there was, there was only... I mean, there was stuff on the market that kind of, you know, allowed collaboration. And, and were you kind of thinking about this completely peripherally, like this is a brand new idea, this is something entirely different? Or were you thinking, okay, look, I like how that guy did it. I like how like, that guy did it. I'm going to clone those bits, put them together, mash them together. Like, where did the, how, 
you know, I, I think it was kind of a mix of a mix of both of those things. So, you know, we saw that, you know, Microsoft SharePoint was there. There were other document management systems, Alfresco. But and but what I saw with all of these was they were kind of boring. They, you know, their user experience wasn't good. The branding was kind of crappy. I wouldn't have signed up for them. But then on the flip side, we saw Basecamp, which was like, holy shit, you know, here's a system which doesn't really do very much. It's really simple. But the user experience is so good, it's so easy to buy. What would be if we could kind of, how would it work if we could bring these two things together to provide all of the power of an enterprise grade document management system and workflow system, but package it up in a way which would be easy to consume, like a base camp, and price it so that you could run it for five people or 50 people or 5,000 people. And I guess it was kind of, um, it was that, plus this brilliant naivety which led us to quit our jobs because I guess you know had we thought about it harder it would have been more there's no way we could run it we can build a business here because the the market's kind of busy and saturated and you know who on earth is going to bet on two guys from southwest London to um, you know to, to build a business in this space but you know we the economy was good we left our jobs we thought you know worst case is we we could always go and do something else you know I could go back to consulting Ali my co-founder um, could always go back into marketing and it just seemed like, you know, we just had fun. We ran around London, we took meetings, you know, we did kind of early customer development. And, you know, this is even before kind of Lean existed. We just kind of figured this stuff out on our own. And, yeah. you know, before we knew it, we um, we quit our jobs. We raised what about... What year was that? That was uh, 2006. Okay, so, yeah. so the last time I wore a suit for work um, for more than one day was uh, the end of October 2006. Yeah. Which seems like a lifetime ago now. Because I was living nice. in a dingy one-bedroom flat in Balham. Um, borrowing money off my dad to pay the mortgage living on credit cards um, thinking well you know this thing's fun but if I don't you know if we don't make some money in the next six months I'm gonna have to go and find another job um, you know and I guess you know I'm lucky enough that, that, it, that it did work out and so how did how did that play out for you when you were going fundraising because you know you're, you're not dealing with like what a lot of people do when they're very uh, nascent is is going for the low-hanging fruit in terms of customer acquisition, you know, whether it be B2C. Like, enterprise is, is tough to sell into. Well, you know, at the beginning, we actually didn't sell purely into enterprise. And I actually made this point on stage earlier that enterprise is such a nebulous word that it's kind of, you have to be careful about, about spraying it too wildly. And, you know, we, we're always B2B, and we kind of knew we wanted to do enterprise, but we sold into smaller businesses to begin with. Yeah. Not like the micro, you know, three-people mom-and-pop shops, but, you know, into... 10 or 15 person companies that needed some of the power but didn't want to go for like the you know the, the whole hog and buy a, so, so, buy a so walk us through a typical like your first few with you and Ali walking in trying to like close a deal yeah the yeah first few because there's a, probably a lot of listeners who are probably at that stage not quite yet a product market fit and we're like okay this is our first sale uh, let's hear how Andy did it you know, and well, I think on that point, I think product market fit is this kind of grand fallacy that we've all been sold into. But no company ever really achieves product market fit because the market's always moving. Yeah. You know, like if you're selling, it doesn't matter if you're selling photo sharing software or mobile phone or document collaboration software, the goalposts are always shifting. And so product market fit is this movable, is this moving piece that you, yeah. you always have to work around. Um, but that's kind of by the by. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, we would go in and I think, and this is always my advice to, to founders is use your network to begin with go and sell to people that you know you know and even if you have to give it away for free for the first three or four months you know get it get it in there get some feedback from them have them be a reference client do a case study you know get them to talk on your website do a video because that's worth far so more how, than the how, how would like for example a reference client video all these things which are I mean they're like they're a big risk for a small company that might be taking on an additional risk by partnering with you and then further diluting their brand because they're taking this risk of reference and videos and stuff. How did you overcome that? How did you get them to believe in you enough to be like, we're gonna put our brand at risk to help you guys out? 
Then, you know, that's a really good question. I think it, it just comes down to, you know, that very kind of early before you get the the repeatable sales model, kind of superhero sale where, you know, you, you sell them so hard on the product and on the value they're going to get from it and then say, but look, you know, we'll cut you a great deal if you do these things for us. You know, and it's not like they're going on to the front page of, of Google talking about how much they love it. It's a, a small website that probably only a, a hundred people in a week would have looked at, but you know, given you know, given that those hundred people were interested, having someone talk about what they were doing and why they loved Huddle was actually massively powerful. And then, how many how many no's until your first yes um, for that kind of sale? You know, I think that we we were lucky enough that through leveraging our network and you know, Ali, both Ali and I were you know were always good at selling something we really believed in. We got a lot of yeses because you know, we were giving it away for nothing, right? Who's going to say no to a piece of software? The challenge then is making them is making them use it, yeah. And, and, and that then becomes like a customer success a customer success job, and you know you're trying to have to sell them on why this is going to make them run their business. Right, so talk better. To, talk talk to us about that. Like, fine, you you you've got it in there through the door for free, and that's awesome. But then you have the challenge of getting the entire employee base to think about it in their workflow yeah. and then using it in a way that makes it sticky enough to then upsell whatever the services were to whoever made the decision. Well, the great thing about starting with small businesses is that you know you don't have to get that many people on board. You know, you have five people in the room and say, oh yeah, this is great, let's try it. That's the five people that are gonna be using it. You know, and as you get bigger, you go from having to convince you know, all five people that are in the room to yeah. selling the champion and then working with them to help sell the rest of the organization. And what's always nice was when, um, you know, it wasn't always a sales job. And as we, at the very beginning, we had a freemium model that people could try for free. So they would experience the value straight away. And then, you know, they they kind of like sign up or call us up and say, hey, you know, we'd like to buy this. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we had like a bunch of different customers from all different verticals. Because at the beginning, right, you don't know who is going to be, you know, who's going to be the perfect fit. I mean, we didn't know. We kind of had a hunch. Um, you know, and, and we knew it was probably going to be professional services, but the one that came out of nowhere to surprise us was government, which is now probably our you know second biggest vertical we sell. We have like 85% of UK central government. We have all these US government agencies. We're accredited to like the highest level of information security, which is FedRAMP in the US. You know, we didn't set out to, bu to build a business that was selling to government, but it kind of happened because you know when you get people responding to what you're doing, you'd be crazy to say, well, no, we're not going to do this because it looks hard. And one of our first customers that came inbound because they'd been they tried it online, they were actually doing a big SharePoint deployment that was just taking forever. Was the Department of Culture, Media and Sport in the UK, which is actually the smallest and most nimble, pretty much of all of the UK central government departments. But it also touches all of the other departments, and they used it to um, to run the UEFA Cup final that was happening in Glasgow cool. in 1990 in 2007. Um, and that you know that got involved with the Home Office. It touched government and police. And yeah, well, you start having a lot of brands on on the on the website and that give it a lot of quite a validation yeah and I think you know what, what we also did and this is kind of cheeky was you, you start to put brands up there that are using it even if they're not necessarily paying for it okay. even if they haven't given you permission because it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is for the uh, the upfront right to do something yeah no it's a, you know and I think as a founder right you have to you have to be balls out and just you know just try things which if you were building a sensible company you probably wouldn't do but you know fuck we're not in the business of building sensible companies we're you know we're trying to build rocket ships and it's, so, uh, on, so you have to do things that make you uncomfortable. On the topic, on, on the topic of rocket ships, you know, there's probably a lot of failed rockets before the one goes up uh, successfully. What if you could go back to sort of younger Andy, Andy and, and Ali of 2007, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd probably tell him that bootcut jeans were a bad idea to start with. Really? <laughs> really, man? I have to throw out my wardrobe now. Okay. So, like, all right. So, what would you, what would you say? Like, what, what would you, what would you say to Ali? What would you say to yourself? In terms of kind of maybe selling mistakes or packaging mistakes, pricing mistakes, uh, go-to-market mistakes. What? 
I, I think what, what, I, what I would have said was, you know, firstly, don't be led too much by what you see in the market. You know, when you build something that you know you, you can sell really well in a, in, a, in a way, you know, what we found actually was having an inbound model but with an assisted sale worked really well for us. And we shouldn't have felt pressured to try and set up this completely friction-free sales model, which actually in the end just kind of degraded the value that we're able to sell for. Because, no. you know, Huddle is a high-value product, right? You know, we're at the apex of how people do their business. It's not like a, it's not something that people, you know, would say we're going to pay two or three dollars a month for. You know, we could quite happily yeah. charge 40 bucks. But to do that, you need to have people helping them sell. Yeah. And we meandered around that. You know, we, we, we stopped doing that and then we came back to it. I think the other mistake we made was we hired... Um, can, I, can I pause that a second? Did you have that as a potential go-to-market because you thought it was a good idea or because an investor thought it was a good idea and was asking you to test that out? I think we thought it was a potential, a potential good idea. Okay. Um, I think, you know, our investors were always, you know, they always made us, you know, challenged us to say, you know, what's going to be the best way to make, you know, to really get that inflection curve where you see yeah. the business going crazy. And of course, you know, so you try things out. I think the... The, really, the, the, the two big mistakes that we made, and you know, this is what I push my companies really hard on now, is firstly, don't underinvest in technology. You know, we, you know, we, we were building tech in a time when, you know, there wasn't a lot, a lot of tech being built in London, right? And so we didn't have the mentorship to say, you know, when you're thinking about your, your spend every month, you should be like, at the very early days, at least, you know, putting at least kind of two thirds or three quarters into tech. You know, we figured that we could build a baseline product and then monetize it. Yeah. But again, you know, the market doesn't sit, sit still, and before you realize it, the features you've built begin to look passe. And unless you've got the capacity to do to make changes quickly, you get left behind. And so, you know, we were always kind of playing catch up a little bit, I think. And then the second thing was, you know, we hired salespeople without actually having the marketing function in place to provide them with the leads they needed to be successful. Because you know you hire you hire salespeople and they'll probably say to you, oh, you know, I'm a great prospector. I'm really good at, uh, at generating leads. That's always bullshit, right? And so what you need to watch out for is, are you going to hire more salespeople than you can feed? Because all that happens then is that the leads will be evenly distributed. No salesperson is getting enough. None of them hit their targets, and they all get upset and they threaten to leave. Wow. So yeah, so you know, you hire salespeople only at the time when the salespeople you have are drowning in leads so much they simply can't service them. That's good. And, and to some extent, you just alluded to something um, about kind of the later stages of your of your career, which is angel investing. Um, maybe you can help the audience kind of understand kind of how that trajectory started yeah. whilst you were also, you know, involved with, with Huddle and, and how that evolved. So I, I think like, like everything, the, you know, where I am today is a fortune of um, a mixture of kind of good fortune, good timing and kind of making canny often stupid decisions that seem to work out. And with angel investing, it was, um, you know, we'd, we'd done our B round, you know, we'd been able to sell like a very, very, very tiny amount of stock. So for the first time, I actually had more than about 3,000 pounds in my bank account. Yeah. And uh, one of my best friends from London, a guy called Bastian, uh, Bastian Lehman, um, he was setting up a company, he'd kind of left the, left the old one, he wanted to kind of be an entrepreneur and kind of build his own business. And he said, look, I need a very big, a, a small amount of cash to help me get up, this off the ground would you consider being our first investor? And I was like, well, you know, I love this guy to pieces. I, you know, I, even, if he, even if I didn't know what he was doing, I'd invest in him. So I said, sure, why not? Um, that business didn't really work, but it pivoted and it became Postmates, which is now the largest on-demand delivery service in the US. Um, it's worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, should, you know, will probably be the first unicorn in my own personal portfolio. You know, and frankly, had I looked back and you know, looked at it with a pair of sensible specs on, I would have said, why the fuck would you give like $10,000 to a, a ludicrous German man with, with, who doesn't even really have an idea that he wants to go with yet? But, you know, you make decisions and sometimes it works out. And what happened was, you know, that was going well, so I began to see more deals. 
and I kind of describe angel investing as a bit like Pokemon. You do one, it feels good, you feel like you're getting a lot out of it, so you do another, and then you've got to get them all. And so the more you do, the more deal flow you see, the better companies that come across. Um, and you know, I, be I began, I guess, to get a reputation as being like one of the few Brits in the Valley who would invest in European companies and help bring them over. Um, and you know, that kind of became a bit of a forte. We did that, you know, I did that with a bunch of companies, introduced them to YC, introduced them to AngelPad, introduced them to other investors, helped them raise rounds. That then turned into uh, running AngelList syndicates, which I did a couple really successfully last year. And then um, after Huddle raised the, uh, a big D round in, um, in the back half of last year, you know, I, I began to feel like I was, I was just kind of getting in the way. You know, we'd had, we had all these new people we'd hired who were way better at doing what they were doing than I could do. But yeah, you know, as a founder, you still feel like you have to kind of be there and say, hey, that button should be slightly bigger or, you know, you want to think about incorporating this into your sales pitch. And Ali and I always had a name for this. We call it SMAV which stands for Senior man Management Added Value. You know, when you walk around telling people stuff and it's actually completely meaningless, you know, it's nonsense, but you feel like you've got to say something. I just felt like I was just throwing a lot of smav around by the end. And, um, you know, and I talked to Charles, who was the partner at Softech, um, an old friend of mine, about maybe thinking about doing something else. He's like, look, when you're ready, let me know. And, you know, you can have a chat with Jeff. And that was the middle of last year. And I said, no, I wasn't ready. Back in the last year, we went to dinner again. I said, you know what? I'm kind of thinking it might be a good time to have a chat. Met Jeff, you know, had a great, you know, great few sessions with him. Um, did some DD on the business. He did some on me. Made me an offer, and you know, I was happy that I could accept it. And about three and a half weeks ago, I stepped back from my full-time role at Huddle. I'm still on the board, still doing part-time, but I'm now a VC, which is really weird because when people say to me, "So, what is it you do?" I start with the same spiel I've had for the last seven years, saying, "Oh, I have a software company called Huddle. We make collaboration software." And then I catch myself, I'm like, "Shit, no, I'm an investor now. Tell me about your business." And what's, a, what's the, the big thing that you said to yourself, if I ever do this for a living, I will never, I will never be that guy who asks that question. Well, I'm, I'm never going to be the guy that says lean in. I'm not going to use that phrase because um, I heard someone use that recently and I, I pretty much hated them on the spot for it because <laughs> they're better than that. You know, they, this person should know better. I'm not going to name names. Um, I would, like what's the one thing that, for example, an investor in your view just doesn't get about the trajectory of a startup that of the type that you're looking at early stage that is just a either an annoying question, irrelevant question, or actually isn't really getting to the fundamental core I, of the main issues. I, I think you can you can immediately tell a good investor from a bad investor with kind of how important they see sales at the beginning of a company. A bad investor will say, right, you know, okay, we've got a basic product out, hire a bunch of salespeople and sell like hell. But if you look at the, the trajectory of like the very best software businesses out there, they haven't hired sales until they've got a modicum of product market fit and you know that through inbound channels and whatever else, they've really been accelerating. Um, I think that um, I would never be the investor who would push a lot of money onto a company unnecessarily. I think that raising too little money is very harmful for a business, but raising too much money is like 10x more harmful. Yeah. Um, Can I pause you on that one? Sure. Because I, I think you have a unique perspective on this as a European um, who has seen the size of rounds that are being done in, in Europe and I'm curious, do you think that the magic number is what's being tossed around the valley right now in terms of some of these rounds of sufficient funding? Or do you think that number is more in line with you know, maybe syndicates that are being generated outside of the, uh, of the US? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like apples and pears, right? You can't take two companies who are in two different geographies, probably two, doing two different things and say, you know, one raised X and one, one raised Y, and that's better. I think that when you look at a lot of companies that have done really, really well though and that haven't overcapitalized, even even in the Valley, you know, let's look at Uber, right? Uber's now raising the, you know, the best part of a billion yeah. dollars. 
their A round was like four million dollars. You know, that wasn't a company that went out and raised a hundred million dollars. You know, at a hundred, it's a hundred million dollar pre. You know, this was a business which um, you know raised actually pretty specific, you know, pretty normal amounts of money until it had shown that it had great traction, and that's when it went wild. Yeah, but four million. Because remember how hard it is in Europe to, to for some founders to go and, and raise capital, unlike let's say the, the Valley, and and there's you know debates all the time about where you should raise money, but. If you're a founder in Europe and you see that a, com a competitor raised two or three times your money in the U.S., yep. is that that you are either underfunded, appropriately funded for the context and expenses that are relevant to your geography, um, or is it that you're just now one step or two steps behind them, uh, no matter what you do? I, you know, I, th I think that's a really good question, and. Again, I think it kind of comes down to the two companies. I think that one of the great things about building in Europe is you have access to this much lower cost base. And especially, I'm thinking about Pipedrive, for example, who are um, one of my portfolio. Uh, you know, they're based in Estonia. You know, their cost per developer is probably one quarter what what the guys maybe with their competition are paying who are based in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and I think that you have to kind of use that to your advantage. And then you know, make and, and you know what these guys have done or are doing, you know, they will build a great business, they will get to the point where, you know, they're beginning to let inflection, and then they will then go and raise a big round in the valley. And I think what you have to do is make sure that you're speaking to investors that understand that, you know, not every business comes out of California, and that some of the very best businesses in the world are, you know, are gonna come from places that these guys probably can't pronounce. Yeah. Um, and how much are you... Is, is there a risk, though, of kind of companies being left behind? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, we've seen time and again that it's much harder for a business to raise a large amount of money in the UK. It can happen, although I think it's very much skewed towards kind of one or two different types of businesses like retail, you know, where, you know, we, you know the UK, we like that a lot. But, you know, if you're building a SaaS business or a, uh, a general consumer business, I kind of always said, you know, and, and I feel kind of cheap for doing this because I'm such a big proponent of, um, of European companies, you need to go out to the valley to do it because that's where you're going to find the guys that can write the big checks who are much happier with the kind of risk involved and can probably be a lot more valuable as well because they've done it a few times over. Yeah. Okay, so maybe tell us a little bit about soft tech. Like, is if what are you looking for in founders? What are the sectors? What are the things that really drive you now that you've sort of these, this new role? So, um, so the thing, that, there were a few things that really attracted me about the about the company when I first met them. I firstly, the team are great. You know, it's a small team. There's four four investors. Um, and they're all super people. They're very bright. They come from very different backgrounds. Um, it's a very diverse team as well. You know, it's not just kind of like four white guys from Stanford, which seems to be the kind of the identikit like um, VC in the Valley. If you kind of if you were to kind of take a uh, take a standard, I also like the stage they invest at. You know, we're going very early. We invest at the seed stage, and seed for us fully means something different to seed in, in the UK. But seed for us means you know we'll put in between 700 to a million 700k to a million dollars in a round of between you know 1.5 to 2.5 million dollars which kind of doesn't seem that different to an a round that we did a few years back but you know that's kind of where it is right now um, I like the uh, the fact they're very hands-on you know one of the things I always loved about angel investing was that I could spend a lot of time with the teams and really you know kind of get deep into what they were doing and almost kind of treat yourself as a parachuted in yeah. third or fourth founder to help them kind of like you know figure out some of the hard shit that you know we figured out in the past and made a lot of mistakes doing so and hopefully you can kind of help them navigate this and do it in one third of the time that we did yeah um, and then I like the fact they're in downtown San Francisco because I didn't want to drive down the 101 every day um, and I really like the fact they have a very strong focus on two things they have a lot of European and non-American founders in, in the portfolio lots couple of Brit companies together yeah that's right you know lots of Brits <laughs> lots of Germans lots of French Spanish Italians people from Asia and I think that's great it's again it's just all too easy for the ex 
Google guy from Stanford to go and raise a, you know, a billion dollars from, from his old boys network. The internet shouldn't be about that. The internet should be about you know, how do we give anybody the ability to build a great company. And then the second thing is you know, they're very pro um, gender diversity as well. So we probably have more female CEOs in our portfolio than any other fund. That's cool. Um, okay, so well, we always like to wrap things up with an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug anything you want. Uh, so preferably not soft tech. <laughs> but um, anything, anything that comes to mind in charity, a cause, uh, a group, an angel? Yeah, so, okay, so there should be something launching very soon. Um, so anyone that's in the UK may have heard of the Founders Forum, which is um, Brent Hoadman and Johnny Goodwin's um, kind of annual, you know, they run a few events annually, it's for entrepreneurs, you know, it's a great honor to be invited. Um, you know, it, it's, it's an awesome event. What we've been working on with them, and this was actually based on an idea that I had with Scott Harrison, the CEO of Charity Water, yeah. at a, a founders event in, um, in New York a couple of years ago, which is most of the founders I know, right? Most of the guys that I've invested in, they like the idea of doing something with charity. They like the idea of, um, of getting involved. But, you know, frankly, most entrepreneurs don't have any liquidity until like four or five years into their journey. But, you know, why should that stop them from, from doing something good? And the idea that we had was called the Founders Pledge, which is where you say, as a founder, I'm going to donate a certain percentage of my of my kind of my stock, which you know I will kind of hold interest for now, and say that you know when I go public or when I get bought, I'm going to give one percent, two percent, five percent, whatever of my own personal stock, not the company stock, just my own stuff to charity, charity water or save the children or really anything that you're that you're involved with, because you know what's the downside? As a, you know, you're going to give away just one percent or two percent of your own personal wealth. That's nothing. You know, you walk out with. Hundred million dollars, you give away a million. You walk away with a million, a million dollars, you give away like you know, ten thousand. It's um, there's you know, there's no reason not to do it. And so um, you know, the problem was though that I you know I started working on this. Damien Kimmelman, uh, you know, spent a great deal of time on this. But we both had day jobs. We got busy, and so we didn't take it as far as we wanted. Founders Forum picked it up and said, hey, maybe we could roll this into what we're doing with Founders Forum for Good, which is their charitable arm. And now we're going to be launching the Founders Pledge through Founders Forum for Good, where any founder of any company of any size, anywhere in the world, can, can say, I'm gonna give up X percentage, you know, it doesn't need to be you know, big, you know, one, two, three percent of my own personal shareholding to give to charity when I have a liquidation event, a liquidity event. That's awesome. Isn't that really cool? That is awesome. That is awesome. And it, you know, you, you feel, you definitely feel like, at, at that point of view, you, you start having this massive moving of, of capital from you know, just the uses of, of, of the valley to like the larger yeah. world. And you know, the great thing is for UK startups, this is, you know, we get gift aid as well. So there's like an extra 25% right. from government. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's it's a complete no brainer. And you know, the, the thing that I've, I learned about, you know, selling software is it has to be really, really simple. And it's the same with this, right? There's just no reason not to do it because it's just so fucking simple. There's like one form you sign, yeah. you, you, you say how much you're gonna donate, you say who it's gonna go to, and you forget. And they will hold yeah. that for you. And then when you have a liquidation event, yeah. they will, or a liquidity event, they will come to you and say, hey, you know, here's the piece of paper you signed. Or even you'll say, hey, I signed that piece of paper. Where do I send my, send my awesome. check? That is awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Andy. And uh, I'm sure the founders will really love hearing about this. And hopefully we'll get a lot more pledges. Yeah, I, I hope so too. So I believe it will be foundersforumforgood.org. Excellent. All right, guys. See you later. Bye-bye.